Hello, this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. So over the last several weeks, uh, we've been looking at um, Acts chapter 2. We've been looking at um, the church kind of outworking from the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what that church functioned like. We're not necessarily trying to just get a program that we can just kind of uh, input into a church, but we're looking for patterns, we're looking for themes, we're looking for things that they did in just the wake of the Lord moving and how we can apply that to our lives. And so this, uh, this morning, I don't think this is necessarily the end of the sermon series. We talked about five characteristics, and this is number five, but I have a feeling we'll probably have more to talk about. Um, and last week, you got two at the same time, so you got four, uh, three and four at the same time, which is pretty cool. Um, but today, we're going to be looking at Acts 2.46. And so over the last several weeks, we've been looking at pretty much Acts 2.40 through 47, um, and what, what the church looked like after people uh, received the Holy Spirit, after people were baptized in water, all these sort of things. Particularly, we are looking at 2.46, and I'm going to read that. It says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now, um, sincerity of heart may be translated in some of your Bibles as simplicity of heart, um, or as Nate's been defining it over the last couple weeks in recap as like godly contentment. Um, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn in your turn to uh, Luke chapter 12. That's primarily where we're going to be working this morning. Um, and uh, while you're turning there, I want to share a story. Um, as, we, as we get into this, um, there's a story that I was thinking of as I was kind of mulling over this, this concept of simplicity, as I was mulling over this, this concept of godly contentment. So I have a picture, Mia, if you want to put that picture up for me. Of a, of a young man, yeah. So this, this young man, um, I'm told, I mean, I didn't meet him. Uh, I'm told that his uh, William Borden. Anybody heard of William Borden? I see a couple nods. Anyways, I'm going to tell you a story. So William Borden uh, was born to an incredibly wealthy family that actually made their fortune um, silver mining here in Colorado, even though they were from Illinois, I believe. Um, Bill was brilliant, very smart, uh, high intellect, um, great, uh, great family that he came from. When he graduated high school, his family wanted to give him a really incredible gift, so they gave him a trip around the world. And so as he's going through Europe and he's just continuing east, he becomes aptly aware of the physical suffering and the gospel deficit of most of the east. And this grips him, and he writes back home to his family and his friends that he has a desire to serve the Lord in missionary service in a foreign field. The response that his family had and his friends were like, that seems like a waste. You, your family are, are literal millionaires, and you're set to inherit your father's empire, or even with the resources, start your own enterprise and do your own thing. It seems like excess. It seems like a waste. And realistically, looking on a life like this, we could probably 
say that's relatively reasonable. There's probably somebody else who could do what you feel called to do. So the story goes that um, as, as William received word back and he was reflecting on this, his response was to write in the, in the entrance of his Bible. He wrote two words. He wrote, no reserves. After his trip, he returned to the U.S. He uh, attended Yale University. Uh, he attended Yale at like 16, which I guess was pretty normal if you were super smart, but that sounds incredible to me. Um, I'm 29 and haven't been to Yale, so I don't know. Um, and his zeal and commitment to the Lord was infectious, and he literally transformed university life. In his time at Yale, there was only 1,300 students that attended. He started a Bible study and prayer meeting, and 1,000 kids were regularly coming to study the Bible and to pray. He was normally found in New Haven, the town where Yale is, uh, ministering to the poor and the orphan and the widow. He was taking care of people. He was serving the lost and winning people to the kingdom of God. The source of his resolve and, and, and this fruit that he was producing was distilled down in a journal entry that he wrote himself, say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. During his time at Yale, he um, decided that his, his field of missionary service was going to be the, the Kansu Muslim people in China. So after he graduated, he was offered several high-paying jobs, offered jobs with his father, offered jobs with other similar companies. And uh, the story goes that he showed no indi indication of considering any of them. Uh, and during this era, he wrote in, in his Bible this reminder. He said, no retreats. So after Yale, he went to Princeton Seminary. He crushed it there as well, obviously. And after he finished his graduate studies, he set sail for China. His plan was that he would sail to Egypt first to learn classical Arabic so he could begin to teach Muslim people in China. In Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died a painful death within a month of boarding. He was 25 years old when he died. In the introduction to his biography, uh, it was written, I have the quote there, Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself, in a way that seemed so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. So eventually, when his body and belongings were recovered um, in the U.S., they read in his Bible another entry. It said, no regrets. This story is frequently told as like an emotional charge for like volunteering to missionary service and like serving the unreached and these kinds of things. But I feel like it serves our purpose this morning, even in our context. So if we're going to talk about simplicity of heart, if we're going to talk about this as a characteristic of a spirit-baptized church, to be honest, this is a, a characteristic that is relatively easy to miss. When we're talking about the company that we have of like the fear of God, when we're talking about signs and wonders, when we're talking about like supernatural unity, people from very different backgrounds coming together in common, when we're talking about radical generosity, people selling all their assets and giving them to people who had need, simplicity of heart sounds like weak. It sounds simple. And growing up, my dad uh, was uh, sometimes not the nicest person ever. He's really nice now. But um, growing up, he used to use the word simple to like, make fun of me and my sisters. Like, it was like a, a polite way to call us dumb. And so he'd be like, oh, you know, what do I expect? You guys are just really simple. <laughs> and like, um, that's, not, that's not the essence here. 
if, uh, in my preferred translation, as I read earlier, um, the word actually used was sincerity, but if you toss that into like a Greek-English lexicon, it quickly spits out the word simplicity. They're very synonymous. And another word that isn't necessarily like a really clean English word is unworldliness. And I think that's interesting, and I think it really begins to show uh, kind of the outworking of the church as it's going forward. When Nate first drafted these five things, um, we were sitting in like a coffee shop, and he was telling me about the things he wanted to talk about, and asked me if I wanted to take one on, and immediately I was drawn to uh, this, this phrase, the simplicity of heart, because I just honestly didn't know what it meant. I didn't know how to preach that. I didn't know... Like, uh, is that like having peace with people? Because that wasn't necessarily a super big mark of the church for very long. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I just didn't know what it meant. So I immediately kind of gravitated towards that one. I started to kind of kick it around in my, in my brain. And I was reading this book at the time that I just recently finished. And it was talking about um, combating the enemies of the soul, which are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so I had all this language buzzing around in my head. And whenever I, I write a teaching like this, I have the whiteboard stage, which is literally I have a whiteboard in my office. And if I just keep it inside, like some people are just internal processes. I don't know if you can just like form what you're going to say before you say it. I can't. I need to get it out, I need to talk it out, I need to write it out, I need to draw lines, make charts, that's the only way I'll ever make any sense. And then some of you are like, what, too late. Um, no. <laughs> so as I was entering my whiteboard process, there was one passage of scripture that, that came to mind. And as I was studying this, I felt like um, I couldn't really do it justice by just paraphrasing. So what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to read a, a, a kind of lengthy chunk of scripture I'm not going to ask you if that's okay. I'm just going to do it. Uh, so I hope that you can hang in there. Uh, it'll be on the screen. If you have your own Bible, I encourage you to follow along. But this is Luke 12, and we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read for a little while. And then we're going we're gonna, to, with limited interruptions, I'm not going to like pipe in every verse or anything like that. But then we're going to break this down differently. Verse 1 says this. Um, Under these circumstances... Um, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were all stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, he being Jesus, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Just one little aside. The context of what we're talking about here is, is Jesus has been doing great miracles. He's been offering crazy teachings. We usually lock that door. That's why it doesn't pop open. Um... We have had people come into church from that door before. My kids do that every Sunday. Um, anyways, um, so the context is Jesus is beginning to bring intense teachings. He's beginning to um, openly criticize the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are plotting to get rid of him. They're plotting to get him out. And so it's these circumstances that Jesus is addressing the multitude, saying, beware of this teaching. Beware of this hypocrisy. Verse 2, he says, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in the inner room shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you to whom, whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Verse 11. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you on that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide my family inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even one who has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? Verse 21, so is the man who stores up his treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they, are neither, they neither sow nor reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them, and how much more valuable are you than birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even this very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat, what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys." Verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Take a deep breath. <sighs> that was 34 verses. That's a lot. That's, that's still just one chapter. It still keeps going. Isn't that crazy? So that's a lot of territory. But I think the reason that I wanted to read all of that is uh, we can draw from this section very clear motives that Jesus is bringing in this teaching. In the context that he's addressing multitudes of people, this isn't just his core group, this isn't just, this is indiscriminate group of people that he's addressing important things to, I think we can draw direct motives. I like to think of verses 30 to 32 are like a thesis of what Jesus is talking about. 
Verse 30 says this, for all these things, the nation, the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And, and I think this is profound because I, I've heard it used in the past, this seek first the kingdom of God and these things will be added to you for just about everything. It's like, I'm pretty poor. Seek first the kingdom of God and God's going to take care of your brother. It's like, I, I, I have a really small house and it sucks. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. It's like, I'm, I'm pretty lonely and I could use a very attractive spouse. Seek first the kingdom of God. Like, if we look at what Jesus is talking about, we're going to look at the things, these things that the world eagerly seeks, and we're going to identify them. But directly in context, Jesus is talking about food and clothing. <laughs> He's saying, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. The Father knows that you need these things. Seek him. Seek his kingdom, and he'll take care of you. And it's like, that brings it, I mean, that's almost worse it almost sounds better. It's like, oh, well, God will give me a house if I pay attention to him. It's like, no, God will provide your basic, necessary, functional needs. But let's look at these things, the things that he's referring to, the things that the nations of the earth and the world desire. So quickly and inadequately, I'm going to summarize. Verses 1 through 3, Jesus is directly name dropping. He's not saying beware bad teaching. He's like, no, those guys that are probably creeping around back here somewhere, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. That is hypocrisy. Beware their teachings, beware their thought processes. And he, he becomes specific. He talks about the things that you try to hide will be revealed. I like to think about this positively and negatively. Like the secret sin that you're trying to hide from your brother, to try to hide from your spouse, try to hide from your, uh, your God, it will be revealed. But also, the things that you do that nobody appreciates you for, God remembers. But it's probably mostly in context of the negative thing. Um, and, and what I wrote is that this essentially is encouraging the followers of Jesus to not fear the world, to not conform to the world, but to follow Jesus. Verses 4 through 12, this is... The, the invitation, the, the command to not fear men being people. Fear the Lord because he has authority. That on earth there will be trouble, there will be suffering, there will be persecution. But the reality is man will kill your body and can take nothing else from you. Man will ruin your reputation but can take nothing from you. But fear, the dread, the reverence belongs to the Lord. So do not fear the world, do not conform to it, particularly when it comes to affiliating with Jesus. I think this was a, a um, probably not a present function, but it would very quickly become a, a big reality for the disciples. As right now they're going places, performing miracles, they're pretty popular, people are happy to see them. But very quickly it's not going to be popular anymore. And people are going to die, and people are going to be chased out of towns that many, if not all, of the early church was, was aggressively martyred, especially the leaders. So he's saying, don't deny Jesus before men, because men can't hurt you. But if you deny Jesus, Jesus will deny you. 
So don't conform to the world. Do not fear the world. Verses 13 through 21, this is, this is uh, probably where the simplicity of heart and the godly contentment uh, is, is the most snugly fit because Jesus is talking about possessions and money. And don't you know it? Jesus talks about possessions and money so often. It makes it so hard to be like, well, it's different. It's 2022, Jesus. Preachers and sneakers. I can have a, a $800 pair of shoes. It's not a big deal. I need this brand new, I need the abundance of possessions. It's different now. This is America. This isn't ancient Near East, whatever. The abundance of possessions. I love the way Jesus talks about um, like greed and abundance of possessions because he says, I think it's verse 16. Forgive me if it's not. Um, I think it's verse 16. Where it talks about even those who have a lot of possessions. Raise your hand if you know somebody who has a lot of possessions. You don't have to tell me who they are. Just write it on an envelope and turn it in the box. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, even the people who have a lot of possessions, that doesn't define their life. He's saying even among the abundance of possessions, your life, is not, your life does not consist. And I, I think this is a, a common frustration with the Lord where it's like, I just don't have enough. I'm just not getting there. If I could just be more financially secure, then I could be more generous. If I could just be more financially secure, then I could be a better dad or a better, a better uh, husband. I could do all these sort of things if, if I just had this. It's like those things do not define life. Even those who appear to have a lot, that, that's not what their life consists of. Oh, it's verse 15. Excuse me. I did have it written down. I was just not reading it. And so again, Jesus is encouraging us. This is the pattern that the world follows. Do not conform to this. And we get to 22 through 32. Again, we're not just talking about abundance anymore. We're talking about basic needs, food, clothing, shelter. You are invited not just to uh, not fret, not just to not worry. I love it because he says, who by worrying added a single moment to their life, even if you can't do this little thing? That seems like a pretty big thing to add time to your life. You know, it's like, I don't know how much green tea you could drink and add hours to your life. But he's like, if you can't even do this, why do you worry about these things? What, what benefit does it have? Does it make you stronger to be scared and paranoid and worry? Far beyond the riches of this life, Jesus says he's glad to give you the kingdom. And he warns the, the disciples and the listeners, do not exchange the world and its riches for the kingdom. Verses 33 through 34, finally. This is uh, what I see as basic practical advice. Because if you're anything like me, you hear this charge, don't worry. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about food or clothing. Don't worry about your future. Don't fret. Don't hide. Be honest. Okay, what does that mean on Monday? What does that mean on, on Sunday afternoon? How do I do that? And I feel like Jesus was intuiting that question. He said, sell your abundance. Give to people who have need. Store up for yourself treasure that never withers. Store up for yourself treasure that never depreciates. He's not talking about gold, you guys. He's not talking about real estate. 
He says, store up your treasure in heaven. And collectively, in our hearts, we roll our eyes. What does that mean? How do I do that? I have bills to pay. When we look at Jesus, he didn't have kids. Jesus didn't have assets. Jesus didn't have debt, you guys, as far as we understand. There are no student loans in the discipleship party. They don't ever talk about it. And William Borden, this good-looking, curly-Q guy, it's almost easier when you have more money to give money away. He didn't have to support race for missions. He had the money, right? He didn't have to worry about his kids or his wife. He didn't have to worry about selling his house or his car. He had it all taken care of. And so we can look in our hearts and be like, Jesus, maybe in the, the direct historical context, this really meant a lot to people because they were all buying vases or tapestries or whatever were like the abundance thing at the time. But it's like, I need a reliable car. I need a functional house. I need the resources. I need to, to do these things to keep up, whatever. But then Jesus just closes it off with this ridiculous statement. In verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And all of us with the debates of like, well, it's different. My situation is different. All of us with those excuses have to bring it before this ancient, universal, not going anywhere kind of truth that when you invest your time and your money into something, it holds your affection. I, I'm gripped by this because I think there's something to contentment that just sounds kind of lazy. Like you're content with being destitute because you just don't want to work hard. <laughs> right? I have what I have because I work hard. But Jesus is like, it's not about what you have. Because remember, in verse 15, he said, your life doesn't consist of your possessions. Your life doesn't consist of, of the things that you've purchased, the things that you've even experienced. But what he is saying about the, the possessions and the things that you uh, put your, your quote-unquote treasure into is that they hold your affections. And the most basic, simple principle of discipleship to Jesus is to love the Lord. And he's saying this is a big, blaring blind spot that is demanding love from your heart. So I, I'm, I'm going to spare you the specifics of saying like, if you make this much money a month, you should be giving this much money. I'm not going to do that. That's not up to me, thank God. Um, that's not up to Nate. What that really is, is where is your treasure? Where do you invest your money? And you're like, no problem. I don't invest any money. I don't even have a savings account, whatever. It's like, I'm, I'm saying that from me. You guys are probably all really responsible and have savings accounts. But like, I have a savings account too. I'm not trying to be like... Feel sorry for me. Um, <laughs> we, try to, we try to do pretty well with our money. But the idea is, even beyond just your, your physical, carnal, like tactile money, where is your heart? Where is your time? 
What is keeping you from doing the things that God called you to do? Because there is something. I remember hearing a teacher once talk about like preaching the gospel. We were in a mission school and he's talking about William Borden and, and doing all this crazy stuff. And he's like, he, he looked at me and Shelby and he's like, Shelby and Adam have probably 15 minutes of discretionary time a week. Because we had two pretty small kids at that point who are still pretty small. Um, and he's like, it's different. <laughs> it's different. Everybody's life is different. But in the room, there were a bunch of single people who had like lots of time. And he's like, what are you doing with all of your time? What are you investing all of your time in? What do you, what is your, where is your treasure? What are you doing? And I think once we get our, our minds past just the deadlines and the assets and the bills, we begin to realize what actually has our heart. Do you know that you could, like, something could have your heart that you don't like? Do you realize that? Like, you could love something fiercely that you don't like. It's like, man, I've been working this job. I've been building this house. I've been doing this thing. And it honestly has all of my attention. When I fall asleep at night, I'm thinking about that thing. When I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about that thing. And I just can't wait till June when I can take a vacation I can't wait until like the dry season when the tourists are gone so I can finally do something for myself. That thing that you don't like that's like whatever, robbing your joy, it has your heart. It's what you spend all your time on. It's what you spend all your resources on. And I know that's difficult and I'm, I'm actually intentionally trying to be vague so that way hopefully your mind can wander and find that thing that's like, is that necessary? Is this thing that I'm doing necessary? But let's, let's zoom out. We're not just trying to look at these things. Because ultimately, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to reel into is to resist conforming to the way of the world and embrace following Jesus. Because there are a lot of things that are innate to the world that we think are natural, that Jesus here is saying, that's not, the what, that's not what God intended. And God is, in fact, the author of life. So... Before we go any further, I think it's probably important to define some terms. I'm a big fan of defining terms. Um, so let's talk about the world. So I've said it a few times now in multiple summaries here. I've said, don't conform to the world. Don't do the world, 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 world. And some of you, really smart people, will think, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So what are we talking about? When I say the world, what are, what are we referring to? Because it can mean people of the earth, mankind, nations, laws, etc. But in the context we're discussing, I think that's not what it's being referred to. I have a quote from a, a linguist from South Africa. When he describes the world, he describes it as a system of practices and standards associated with secular society. For those of you who maybe are wondering about secular society, it's a simple thought process. That is, trying to function as a group of people denying the existence of God. So like secular can mean all kinds of stuff. It's like secular music, which is Christian music, whatever. But what it's referring to is as if God didn't exist. So the things that are associated with society working as if God doesn't exist. Now, uh, there's a Jewish philosopher named Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he expanded on this. He riffed on this idea of what secular society means. And he wrote it in a pretty blunt, uh, kind of like a harsh way. 
Um, so I'll, I'll read that to you. Man reigns supreme with the forces of nature as his only possible adversaries. Man is alone, free, and growing stronger. God is either non-existent or unconcerned. It is human initiative that makes history. It is primarily by force that constellations change. Man can attain his own salvation. And some of you who may have identified with the Christian background for a while are like shocked. Hopefully that sounds like crazy. But realistically, this is, this is the hustle culture of our day. This is the drive of entrepreneurship. This is the drive of, of, of hardworking, American dream-bound individuals. I will make my own destiny. I will forge my own way. I will build my own dream. Nobody else is going to build it for me. I'm going to work hard. And you take that clip by itself. It's like, yeah, work hard. Do it. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yeah. My family will be totally happy once I have lots of money. We can go to Disneyland. I don't need to spend time with them today. I'll spend time with them at Disneyland, you know? Like and and we'll just we'll just grind. We'll we'll do it and and we will I like the way he used it primarily by force that constellations change. Like what a what a bold thing to say. If we use the scripture to define itself, um, if we look at 1 John 2, verse 16 says for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So these lustful desires, and I'm not just talking about like sexual immorality, I'm talking about desiring for things that you don't have, <laughs> desiring for things that you can't have. This, this pride of life, like I can make my own way, I can provide for myself, I don't need anybody's help, I can do it. Because even the idea that you need help can be kind of prideful. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, yeah, you're describing millennials, the entitled, the hand-me generation. Even that is kind of prideful. The idea of saying, I don't need any help is prideful. And the idea of saying, I deserve help is prideful. <laughs> right? And he's saying these things the desire for things that are pleasing to the eye, the desire of things that are pleasing to the flesh. This is the carnality. This is the wickedness that motivated the serpent deceiving Eve in the beginning of the book. The fruit was pleasing to the eye. She saw that it was good for food. And if she ate it, she'd be like God. This is this is the lust of life. And he's saying this is not natural. This is not ordinary. This is not the point. For some of us, the idea of working hard, and bless God, you work hard, the idea of working hard feels so natural. The idea of depending on God feels like pulling teeth. And back then, they didn't have anesthesia. Don't shake your head at me. It's true. Look it up. <laughs> this feels very difficult that these ideas of of kind of uh, building your own dreams, this idea of, of making your own way, this idea of abundance of possessions and being a friend of the world feels natural. It feels easy. It feels like a coast. For some of us, it feels like a lot of work. But the truth of the matter is what's natural is to deny yourself. Last week, Nate quoted Philippians 2. He read the first four verses where it literally, Paul has the audacity to say something like, consider other people more important than yourself. 
Have no, do nothing of selfish conceit. Don't do anything just because it benefits you. Do things for other people. Serve other people. Love other people. Give to other people. And I remember hearing this example once. I think it was in a, in a sermon. But if you take a frog, like, where are we going? If you take a frog and you put it in a pot of water, it's comfortable. It's amphibious. They, they can absorb water into their skin. Isn't that sweet? And you start to turn the heat up on the pot, and you do it real slow-like. You can literally boil a frog to death with zero resistance if you just do it subtly. I myself have not done this, so don't call somebody about that. I've read it. I looked it up. It's possible. It's a real thing. And I think a lot of times our conditioning, the way we're, we're taught to see the world, the way we're taught to see ourselves and we're taught to see other people is not a product of the Lord or our design. It's a product of our conditioning. And I'm not, like, before you, you, you misunderstand me, I'm not talking about, like, left media news outlets. I'm not talking about shifty politicians that you shouldn't trust. I'm not talking about big business and corporations. I'm talking about the way you see yourself and the way you see other people. That this simplicity of heart goes back to the very core of who you are, the very core of your position in the world. And the fact that the church was moving forward with the simplicity of denying what the world wanted and embracing what Jesus wanted was profound and powerful. A quick note, I, I was sitting around with some people a couple weeks ago, I think, and I was asked a question like, what do you think about people who don't go to church because it doesn't look like Acts chapter 2? I was like, well, they should come to our church. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and I was like, I, I mean... I've talked to people like that before. I think it's a pretty common thing that people are like, the church isn't what the church is supposed to be, so I'm not going to be a part of the church. And it's like, it sounds like you have something to offer, so maybe you should be a part of the church. Because nobody, Nate or Kelly or, or Kelsey or anybody, is arguing with the church is not what it's supposed to be. If somebody is, is telling you, my church is exactly what it's supposed to be, it's like, Wow. Maybe you shouldn't go to that church. It's, it's already perfect. If you go there, it'll be ruined. Um, but like what we're all trying to do is we're all trying to follow Jesus. We're all trying to impact our community. We're all trying to uh, address the demographic that the Lord has placed us in, that we could have the gospel penetrate in this hour of history and see people come to know Jesus, right? We're all trying to glorify God. And I made the joke, and it's in jest. I wouldn't say this to somebody unless they were a close friend. They're like, what, what would you say to somebody who's like, the church isn't doing what Acts 2 is doing, so I don't want any part of what the church is doing. It's like, well, what I would tell that person is, why don't you sell everything you have, bring it to me and Nate, and then we'll do what Acts 2 is doing. Spoiler alert, I don't want you to do that. I really don't want you to do that. That sounds terrifying. If the Lord tells you to do that, whew, we're going to need some financial advisors up in here. I don't want to do that. The point is, we're not looking for programs or just simple imitations. We're looking to do what Jesus would do if he were here. We're looking to be what Jesus would be if he were us. And we're looking to follow him. And I think he's given us some, some very good wisdom on how to do that. But I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. 
Do not conform to the world. Do not desire the things that the world wants, but embrace the kingdom of God. So let's talk about the kingdom. What is the kingdom? So there's a lot of synonyms in, in the New Testament. We can talk about heaven. And, and this is a whole can of worms, baby. This is all kinds of stuff. Because is heaven like this cloudy Mount Olympus-y sort of place that you go when you die? Is heaven the new Jerusalem? Is it a, a, a different dimension or like a thought process where God physically occupies? Or a lot of times in the Bible, the word heaven literally means the sky or generally up. Like the heavens could be space, you know? Like it's, it's not necessarily talking about, it's not always the same thing. So what I want to do is I want to talk about the kingdom, heaven, as God's dominion. And this is sticky stuff because there are people who have interpreted this as there is this theological premise that we stand firmly on, that there is this concept called the millennial reign of Jesus. And there are people who have taken passages like on earth as it is in heaven, like pray like this, that pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. People have taken that like, oh, this means kingdom now, that we're going to take over the government. We're going to take over politics and laws, and we're going to form militias and little Christian communities, and we're going to, we're going to uh, be espionage and, and take over the United States and then take over the world as a creative minority that's going to attack the, the, the influence centers of the world. I do not think that's what Jesus was doing. If he was, he was doing it very poorly. I do not think that's what the apostles were doing. I don't think they were forming militias. I don't think they were organizing governments. I think they were building the kingdom as the family of God where God's way goes. And I'm not here to fight with that, but I do want to, I want to define the kingdom in general. So my definition I have up here, I think, I defined it just simply because there's a lot of Bible verses where Jesus describes the kingdom as like a mustard seed and as a tree and different stuff like that. But just for our purposes and systematic purposes, I define the kingdom as the sovereign lordship of the one true God and all of its outworking. Just this last Tuesday, we were talking about um, Hebrews, and we were talking about uh, faith, and we were talking about miracles, we were talking about these different things, and, um, and we, we started to use this image that when the kingdom of God is, is advancing on earth, we start to see things change on earth. So when we talk about signs and wonders, when we talk about healing and miracles, it's not just for the sake of like, man, we are really outgoing and these things happen to us all the time because we're super cool. Like we're super mature Christians, so these things happen. No, it's actually the king of the universe and all of his entourage of his kingdom coming into our reality, and so it overlaps. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe I should have brought a diagram, but the idea is that when Jesus is welcomed, when Jesus is, is allowed to do what Jesus does, then the outworkings of the kingdom, where there's no darkness, where there's no evil, where there's no lies, where there's healing, there's no sickness, when he's allowed and welcomed, those things start to take place. Where there is faith to receive him, heaven is most literally crashing into earth. And things transform around us. 
So when we think about the kingdom, the kingdom isn't just a set of philosophies that are immaterial and separate. It is literally what it's like when God is in charge. When God has his way. I remember um, a Pastor Bobby Wilson used to say, this is what revival is. is it's God's way in God's timing. He's like, stop looking for the fantastic or the sensational. It's God doing what God wants to do when God wants to do it. And some of you are like, man, that sounds pretty sensational. I don't know. That sounds, that sounds pretty crazy. So to say again, this is about orienting yourself away from the world and the thought processes that the world the thought process that the world seeks, the things that define a person in the world, and embracing instead the way of Jesus. And I think among the five characteristics we discussed, if you're behind, all of those are on YouTube, all of those are on Apple Podcasts, you can catch up. But I feel like this one feels kind of offensive. Not just in like, hey, if, you're, if your whole thing is about just like a, accumulating possessions, that's not what God wants for your life. That's offensive. That kind of hurts your feelings, whatever. I'm not, like, I'm not really interested. Like, I think there are preachers who just kind of get off on like hurting people's feelings. I don't really like to do that. Um, I don't really just want to make you feel good <laughs> either. But um, my goal is to hopefully tell the truth. But when I say offensive, I mean that it feels like it's rebellious. It's kind of like a revolution. Because it's saying there are things that are so normal and ordinary that I can actually say no to. The idea of advancing myself with these sort of uh, linear moves as I'm moving forward and I'm making money and I'm doing things and I'm successful by the world standards, I can say no to that and say yes to Jesus. It seems kind of rebellious, doesn't it? That everyone that you work with may have one goal, but you have another goal. And maybe your lives look similar. I'm not saying like you can't have money. I'm not saying you can't have possessions. I think there are people, people in this church without like name dropping and embarrassing people. I think there are people in this church who the Lord has blessed with resources and they have given. They use their time and their resources to bless other people and bring people to Jesus. And I think that's real. I think we can expect that. I think we can hope for that. But the reality is that we don't want to chase things the way the world chases things. We want to pursue Jesus. And uh, probably a, a valuable clarification is uh, there's this term, and it was used very often in the time of Jesus. Um, that was the ascetics or the asceticism. You, you're familiar with the term? The idea is uh, that all pleasure is bad. Um, and that, like, if you enjoy something, it's sinful. Do you know that's actually like the root of like when we say we say grace before a meal? That's actually the root of where that came from. You're asking for grace because you're going to enjoy food and it's going to help your body. Isn't that weird? That's not in the Bible. Nobody says like Jesus blessed food and, and gave it to people. But like saying asking for grace for eating food, like, I mean, use your terms. It's not like you're, you feel bad for eating. If you feel bad for eating, we'll pray for you. Um, Jesus isn't trying to take away the fun of life and ruin your life so that way you're miserable but you're holy. Because honestly, like, if we're only, like, if, if we're constantly coveting what the world has, then we're really missing the point of what Jesus is trying to do. 
Because there's, there's truth of lament. You see that David does that all the time. Like, why is the wicked man succeeding? And why is the righteous man suffering? Why is it like this? That's real. But uh, John 10 is, is, a, is, a, is a brain breaker. He says that the enemy, the one who doesn't enter by the gate, the one who is not the good shepherd, he comes to steal and kill and destroy. But you know what the Lord, the good shepherd, comes to do? He comes to give you life and life abundantly, the fullest, most rich and beautiful form of life. I remember having friends, I myself have never been addicted to drugs, but I have had friends who are addicted to drugs, and they're like, it took me a while to get sober, but once I was actually clean, I have more fun and enjoy my life so much better now that I can see clearly, I can think clearly, and everything makes sense. And the Lord is conditioning us away from that. The Lord is drawing us away from the, the sort of stupor of the world and the way things feel when you have your way and teaching us to embrace the way of Jesus. So let's recap. I have three things that I want to recap with. So don't let the world control your affections. Don't let the world control your fear. And the way that you do those two things is to embrace the way of Jesus. Now, those of you who, who maybe know me a little bit, I, 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 uh, my nemesis is vagueness. I hate vagueness. That's why I talk so much. I just want to explain everything. But I'm not your dad. I don't know what you need. But the Father in heaven knows what you need. I wish I could just go through, all right, let's go scenario by scenario. Let's, let's organize people's lives right now, right here. I, I, I'm kidding. I don't want to do that. If you want prayer, if you want to talk to somebody, I, I just don't want to tell you what to do. Um, but the idea is that once we can actually uh, rip our, our affections and our love out of the clutches of the world, when we, can, uh, when we can remove the idea of fear or anxiety or resistance of the world then we can begin to do the things that Jesus told us. If you think about the other five characteristics, last week was a doozy. Getting along with other people? Getting along with people that are different from you? Shoot, that's crazy. That sounds great when we're all sitting here quietly, but once we start talking to each other, that's like, that's crazy, right? That's a work of the Holy Spirit. I can see the look in some of your eyes. You don't get along with anybody. I'm just kidding. You guys are all so nice. But the idea of, of the Lord like bringing us into the kingdom is not the Lord bringing us into like a homogenous mass where we're all exactly the same. There's going to be diversity. There's going to be friction. And the Lord is calling us to be unified. And I think when we're not just trying to advance our own agendas and our own things and the things that we want, we begin to feel unity come more naturally. And radical generosity. Some of you have this in a powerful way. And I'm grateful. I'm blessed. But the idea of, of giving excessively and sacrificially, of resources, of, of money, of time. Sometimes it's way easier to give money than it is to give time. The only way this is possible is if you resolve to say yes to Jesus every time. If you resolve to say no to the world and say yes to Jesus, oh, well, I deserve this. Jesus says, well, I didn't deserve what I got. 
So as these things build upon each other, I pray that you can feel the yoke of the world fall off, the pressure of this life fall off, that you're not just trying to be successful by the world's standards. I remember sitting with a young man years ago, and he was in our youth group, and then we moved, and he came, and he was visiting us. I think he was doing other things, but he visited us. And we sat down, we were drinking coffee, and, and uh, I'm not a huge fan of awkward silences. I don't know if anybody in here is a huge, huge fan of awkward silences. So I just have questions like in the quiver, ready to pull out if, if things get weird. And so I was like, what do you think success means? I don't know. Like, what would your life look like if you were successful? He's like, I'm talking to a guy who was previously a pastor. So I think I would have a family. It's like, well, that sounds nice. I think I, I would be married and I would uh, probably have some kids, and I would have enough. Like enough money, enough, like a house that I liked, and I'd be comfortable. That sounds successful to me. I was like, you could have said something way worse. <laughs> I've, I've asked that question to other people, and they're like, I, I want to be rich. I, I want to I have it all. I want to I I do it. It's like, thank you for being transparent. That's amazing. <laughs> like... <laughs> But even thinking about that answer, like where as pure and as honest, I think he was being honest with me, as pure and as honest as that sounded, I think the reality is it's like, I'm not really owed anything. So what is my metric for success when I'm literally owed nothing? Where I was previously dead, but thanks to the grace and the, the, the mercy of God, I've been made alive. What am I entitled to? My success, I'm saying definitively, I'm not saying like every time I wake up, this is exactly the way I think. My success is that I know Jesus and Jesus knows me. And not just in the way that like demons know Jesus, but like we, we love each other. I know that he loves me and I love him. He knows that I love him and we're walking in agreement that I'm doing the things he wants me to do. That is my success. Because if I were to defi define that honestly, it would be that I had a job, I think that would be pretty successful. Uh, I would like to teach and people like it. That would be really successful to me. Like people would like when I taught, I would really like that. This isn't like a pity party, don't like come up, oh, you did such a good job. I know I did a good job. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the point is like, those are things that I would think in my mind, it's like, man, if, if I reached this point, then I would know that I'm doing, that I'm, I'm successful. And I just dial back to the prescription of Jesus to seek the kingdom of God, to seek first who Jesus is and what Jesus wants. And guys, when you seek the kingdom of God, you quickly, quickly run into other people. Isn't that just a trip? You think when you're seeking the kingdom of God, it's just going to be you and Jesus. And you're just like this, this beautiful monk that just sits before God and, and and praise 24-7. It's like, I'm finally doing it. I've, I've renounced worldly possessions and I'm a Jedi now. This is beautiful. And then all of a sudden, there are other people there. And God says, give them your time. Give them your money. Give them your care. I remember praying, guys, if any of my youth group from Fort Lupton ever hears this, I'm sorry. I remember praying to the Lord, Lord, help me care about these kids. Because I just want to go home. 
right? Forgive me. Forgive me. I never did that in Pagosa. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's, it's real. I remember reading that Jesus has been tempted in the, all the ways that I've been tempted, but without sin, and just thinking, Jesus, you were tempted to just look at a person and be like, oh, I don't want to deal with you right now. I'm going to pretend I didn't see him in the grocery store because I just don't want to do this. And he had no sin, but he considered other people's needs more important than his own. That I don't think Jesus led this, this lifestyle where he, he had this sort of unpronounced vow of poverty where he didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't carry a lot of possessions with him. I don't think he did that on accident. I don't think he was lazy, you guys. I think he intentionally gave everything he had for other people. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.